Welcome to Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. Our host is Dr. Sven Estring with special guest Dr. John Ashton and our panel. Hello, I'm Dr. Sven Estering and welcome back to Evolution Impossible. Here with me to continue this fascinating journey is Dr. John Ashton, Ali Turner, Jean-Ray Roux, and Stephen Aveling Rowe. Thanks for joining me once again. As soon as I say the name Darwin, I'm sure that you'll instantly know who I'm talking about. And pictures of the voyage of the HMS Beagle, the Galapagos Islands, Finchbeaks, and that very well-known picture of a lineup of monkeys slowly standing up and gradually becoming a human being will come to mind. But sometimes people really don't know what Darwin's theory actually was. So John, can you clarify for us, what was Darwin's theory? How did he explain how life came about? Yeah, sure. Well, Darwin uh, grew up in the age when we had the mechanical worldview was being developed and in particular, machines were being developed. And very they, mechanistic. They were, well, yes, but machines were evolving and there, were talk, there was talk about these changes and people were actually saying, well, did life actually change like this too? Because there was also a group of intellectuals that believed that the earth was millions of years old. So James Hutton, back in the late 1700s, had proposed this, uh, that the biblical timeline was too short, uh, that the rocks were millions of years old, and that time was much longer. And the other thing was that Darwin, of course, was very interested in, in nature and uh, he'd been interested in breeding and so forth. He was very interested in beetles, if I remember rightly. Was that correct? Oh, well, that was among the, the many different of types of animals. He was interested in lots of animals. But part of his initial concept, though, came from studying, for example, just grass in the lawn. And he grass grow? <laughs> well, yes, but what he noticed was that when he looked at a, a square yard of glass, and they had yards back in those days, metres today, um, that um, there were all these different types of grass in there, and they were essentially competing for the same space, the same nutrients. And this was, in his mind, developed, there, were, there was competition here. Now, at that time as well, he went on the voyage on the Beagle that we learn about, and he was given a copy of the book uh, by uh, Charles Lyell, the geologist. Now, Lyell, again, was certainly enamoured with long ages and long periods of time. And um, uh, so Darwin read this book. Now, in the meantime, Darwin was putting together his ideas of how perhaps mutations produce different types of organisms. And he, he drew a tree, a tree of life. And he, he proposed that, that uh, he saw all the, the species of grass and many of them were so similar. So he thought, well, maybe there are mutations and they breed and they breed. And then over time, after enough generations, there's sufficient differences that they actually form a new species. So how many generations does it take for that tree to start branching? Well, Darwin didn't know, of course, but he proposed initially in his diagram, and as he wrote about, about a thousand generations. But he also made the proviso, well, maybe it could be 10,000 generations. So he didn't really know, which was quite reasonable. 
you know, in terms of developing his theory. So essentially when he read Lyle's book on the, on the journey and saw that Lyle had noticed that in the fossil record, the fossils higher up in the strata, which was the most more recent strata, seemed to be more complex compared to the animals that were further down. This sort of matched Darwin's little diagram of his, his tree of mutations. And essentially that's what he did. He put, he put the two together. And of course he'd noticed in that island off the west coast of Africa, Madeira I think it is, that there were a couple of hundred species of wingless beetles and they had survived because it was a very windy island. And of course the beetles that have wings just got blown off the island so they didn't stay around to mate and breed. But the ones that developed deformities had mutations and so their wings were smaller they didn't get blown off so they could breed and, and so progress. The beetles were evolving. Yeah, so, yes and so that led to this uh, idea of, of survival of the fittest for the environment so that eliminated the unnecessary mutations or the mutations that weren't suited so the best mutations survived. So it's a combination of those three factors really though the competition of species saw them there but there were a lot of similarities with the grass so maybe there was a common ancestor and they all sort of bred and slowly developed differences represented that little tree and then Lyle's theory well hang on we've got all these different layers in the rocks and they contain different types of fossils it would seem the invariant complexity and then this observation of, of many species competing for food or the, in the environment and so forth and uh, I mean it was a, it was a brilliant idea right he, he went through one of the things of course was he didn't know how life started he said whatever some primordial ancestor into which life was first breathed. Mm. So the that common ancestor going back in time through this tree of tree of life. That's and, right. Yes. And and look, this tree of life, it's it's a brilliant <coughs> teaching tool. You know, in terms of you just you know draw it out there on 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 a notebook on a blackboard uh, back then. And I guess my question for for our panel here is this: Does the Darwin's tree of life does it does it make sense to you? Uh, does it, you know, does it kind of explain, um, do you get what Darwin was trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, the twigs on the branches, they make sense. But uh, the branches and the trunk itself, that's where I struggle to see the connections. Right, right. So, so you start to doubt the, the history of this very the tree of life. Seeing the record there, I just haven't seen enough evidence for me to personally see that it makes sense. Right. And what about you, John Ray? Yeah, yeah. For me, it's very vague. Like, um, he, he draws this tree of life and he explains it, but he doesn't really know anything. Um, mm. he, it could be a thousand years, it could be a thousand generations, you know. Mm. Um, he just, he's just vague. Yeah. And I guess the big question, uh, uh, John, is this. Was this the only theory around? And, and Ali, just wanted to know, um, did you have any questions for, for John on that, that topic? Yeah, I was, um, I was specifically wondering um, what other theories in the Western world existed at the time of Darwin um, in terms of uh, the origin of life. Obviously, there were lots of religions around the world that believed different things about how life originated, but was it widely believed in Darwin's time that God created the world and the things that we see, or was there other theories that were circulating? No, certainly at, in Darwin's time at leading European universities, 
uh, most leading scientists and philosophers would have believed in God and, and creation. And in fact, uh, flood theory to explain the origin of structures was probably taught at Oxford University up at least until the early uh, 1800s. Um, so these scientists certainly believed um, in that and, and many of the leading scientists were in fact creationists, you know, people like Newton and, and even after Darwin's time there were scientists that recognised, hang on, there are major problems with his theory and one of those scientists is James Clerk Maxwell and Maxwell was the, uh, the physicist that uh, uh, proposed that light was a combination of electric and magnetic fields and developed field theory, brilliant physicist. Matter of fact, Einstein simply applied his theories to gravity and built on Maxwell. So Maxwell is one of the great scientists along with Einstein and Newton. And Maxwell was a very strong anti-Darwinist and he said, well, how, how did you know, molecules evolve and how did atoms evolve? He, he raised a lot of very interesting questions. But in actual fact, the theory of evolution goes back to the ancient Greek, Greek times. So you've got Greek philosophers living about 500 BC, that's sort of the area Democritus and so forth. They believed that, um, uh, they, they didn't believe in God, so right this, and so they believed that originally the, the matter was, there was just all these little particles of matter and they uh, flowed around, they clumped together and they became the animals and the trees and, and this sort of thing. Mm. And uh, those theories were recorded, as I recall, in a, in a poem by Lucretius, a, uh, a Roman poet, uh, wrote in the, uh, around the, the first century, I think, or thereabouts. Um, and his poem was essentially lost and rediscovered. And again, boy, you're testing me <laughs> my theory of history now. But I think round about the 1300s, a copy of Lucretius' poem was discovered that um, encapsulated these earlier theories of Democrates and so forth in terms of atoms and, and so forth. And, um, and that really led to an explosion of thinking along these particular lines and laid the, the foundations later for evolutionary theory. Of course, in the meantime, there'd been these theories of, you know, that life was spontaneously generated and, you know, people had, had noted, well, hang on, if you leave a bag of wheat out or something, you know, you find mice there, you know. So. <laughs> but um, I don't, uh, but, you know, Pasteur, uh, again, was able to show that, hang on, if you, you know, boiled a liquid and, um, and, and sterilise it, no you didn't, you know, and, and uh, separate it from air, you, you didn't get anything coming to life or, or grow. So, and even today of course, we still don't know how the first life, you know, started. But that was, Darwin's theory really provided a mechanical, the, a theory based on a, a mechanical model. Uh, because at that time, Newton had published his uh, Principle of Mechanics um, and uh, the laws of motion, the laws of physics had been discovered, but biology was, was out there by itself. So now if you had the tree of life, you had your mutation mechanisms, your natural selection, you had this mechanical mechanism now that uh, could be applied to biology. So that's why it really, really took off. Plus, Lyle was a brilliant geologist and uh, he did a lot of mapping. He developed this concept of the geological column over time and that was um, embraced too. The only issue was that a lot of the measurements that he did were based on, on estimates and so forth that we know now are wrong.
Yes. Hmm. And so from what I understand, Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, actually believed in a form of evolution as well. And he had a colleague, Wallace, um, if I recall correctly, who was also developing these ideas. So there was this real fascination with machines, but also this real emphasis on how do we kind of um, kind of eliminate or, or um, push the supernatural out of the, the developmental process for, for life as well. So it's very interesting, this whole um, you know, era in which these, these theories were developing. But of course, Darwin had a, um, a friend, a colleague, Thomas Huxley, and um, can you tell us a little bit more about Thomas Huxley and his involvement uh, with Darwin and the, the promotion of the theory of evolution, uh, which, which followed from Darwin's book? Yeah, so uh, Huxley wrote a book uh, three or four years after Darwin. It would have been published 1864, I think. Uh, something like uh, The Ascent of Man, something right. like that. And uh, essentially his claim was that man had ascended from the apes. And so he applied Darwin's theory of evolution, particularly in the concept of the origin of man and, uh, and that man had essentially evolved from apes. And that's of course why anthropologists and paleontologists began looking for the earliest uh, you know, remains of uh, human-like species in Africa. Mm. That was the, the whole basis of that because apes were found in, in Africa there, mm. yes. Mm. So that was a very important aspect. And, and my understanding from the reading literature is that that whole mid-1800 area was, uh, was so enamoured with this mechanical view of things. And um, you know, they were certainly talking about, you know, in academic circles, machines, and they saw the gradual evolution of the steam engine and people with better uh, valves and better uh, safety valves and you know so forth developed better machines. But at mm. the same time, we also, with the Industrial Revolution, saw people moved off their little cottage industries into the cities and there wasn't there enough work now, there wasn't enough food and so there was intense competition for survival in the cities and to get enough food. So the, the, there was all this social change that you talk about taking place where you saw that in society, people were fighting over limited resources in the city mm. and at the same time there were all these machines evolving, the powering the cotton mills, people with you know, better governors on their machines and better horsepower could produce more. Mm. Um, and so those factories did better and the other ones, you know, sort of went broke and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was a whole environment at that time. At the same time, the power of the church was very strong and there were a lot of academics that didn't want to, you know, were looking for ways to challenge the power of the church. Right. And Darwin's theory was seen at this way, hang on, we can explain the origin of life outside the story or the account in Genesis. Mm. And this had really gripped that group of academics that didn't want God in the picture. And that would explain the debate between the Bishop Samuel Wilberforce, mm. uh, Thomas Huxley, and also Charles Darwin as well. And one of the, the, the comments that they made is, you know, whether they evolved from a, from a monkey or, or an ape, you know, whether their, their grandmother was, a, was an ape or not. And I guess the question for us today is this, how do you feel about this concept of, of us evolving from some kind of ape-like creature in the past? How does that strike you? Uh, 
I've always struggled with the idea that my great-great-great-grandfather was a monkey. Um, but I actually had a specific question for Dr Ashton on that. Um, in Chapter 2 of your book, you mentioned um, a find of a skeleton that they called Lucy, um, and that was supposed to be a transitional fossil between humans and apes. And um, you, you noted that since then they, there's been more recent finds that Lucy was actually more different from humans and apes than humans and apes are from each other. Um, and I was just wondering what that um, find exactly was based on. Was it based on this, the skeleton structure or was it based on DNA evidence or how did they come to that conclusion? Yeah, so it's certainly based on anatomical evidence. Uh, so it was based on the physical bone structure so forth when that was examined. It's interesting, in museums they sometimes have models of Lucy and uh, one of the ones that I saw would have been like a, a typical human model where they've put hair all over her and put a sort of an ape-like face. But humans stand very different to apes. We have a very different pelvic structure, the way the, the bones uh, enter there and so forth and uh, it's, it's very different. And so th what happens is sometimes in these museum and in these reconstructions that are, that are portrayed in books, they're portrayed, it would seem more human-like than in actual fact they are. If we actually portrayed them as they are correctly anatomically, they, they wouldn't look as human-like as they're portrayed. And of course, this all helps confirm this concept that we did evolve from apes, where in actual fact, when we look at the actual physiology, when we examine the bones, when we examine how they would have stood, it would have been very different to those images mm. that are created. Mm. Mm. So to carry on from that then, think of living fossils. I mean, how, how within evolutionary millions of years would we still have fossilised remains of things like, I mean, there's whales, there's so many different species that we have exact conformity to what we see in the natural world today. And yet, if we look back, you know, there are also fossil records. How does that fit in with the evolutionary perspective? Well, of course, yes, Dar Darwin claimed that, you know, we would find the fossils of the intermediate species. This was a, a major problem. And so what we find in the fossil record is that the species essentially don't change. They appear, they stay the same, and then they might be become extinct. Or we find fossils like, you say, of whales, and they're the same today. Um, what we're not finding is the intermediate. So we should have seen slowly, say, the development of turtles. We should have seen slowly a creature changing into a turtle or the development of horns, uh, say, you know, on uh, different species, so the, whether it's dinosaurs, whatever, we should have seen the gradual development of these, but we don't. We don't find these evolutionary intermediates. And that, you know, a classic one is sort of from dinosaurs to birds, mm -hmm. looking for the intermediates there, and they're often desperate to find um, a fossil. But the, the point is that if Darwin's theory really happened, and we find, you know, trillions of fossils just about, we, if we, um, there should also be millions of intermediate fossils, millions of fossils showing this gradual transition but we don't find those changes. This yeah. is a major, major problem that is, and, and leading paleontologists recognise this too, that the, the geologic column doesn't actually show the gradual progression that originally Lyle thought that it did. And mm -hmm. secondly, 
because in actual fact the fossils are all mixed up like for example when I was in Hawaii recently I saw in the museum there a fossil of a mammal with the remains of a dinosaur in its stomach. Hmm. Wow. So people ought to think, you know, oh, the mammals came later, but no, they coexisted yeah. with dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not the picture that we often get. Mm. So the fossils, in actual fact, are a lot more mixed up than we would have us believe in the geological column, mm. in actual fact, out there. And the other thing is the, the lack of these intermediates. We haven't found the intermediate fossils. So the, the geologic uh, record, the paleontological record, does not actually provide evidence for evolution. And this is a major problem. But again, this isn't really enforced to, to the, mm. the young people. Mm. You, know, doc, you know, Dr. Ashton, um, for me it's always been, if evolution teaches that we evolved from apes, why is there still apes? So how does evolution explain that? Well, I guess from the, from the tree they would say some continue the same, but you have these mutations that come off and they've accumulated mm. and, and so forth. But another mm. question that follows from that as well is, you know, it's well known that um, human beings, chimpanzees, apes, we're about 96% the same in terms of our genome. Uh, so that sounds really suspiciously like the, the fact that we evolved. How, how would we address that? that sort of genetic piece of information. Yeah, sure. Okay, well look, that's pretty subjective. That 96%, I guess, looks at the number of genes and that is responsible for biochemical pathways that we have. So we are very complex. Our biochemistry is extremely complex. And so we have a lot of DNA in us to provide those biochemical pathways and all these little molecular machines that are very similar in a lot of mammals and, and particularly in apes that have slightly similar to, to us. But that claim of similarity doesn't include a lot of the junk DNA, which they didn't know, so there's a lot of questions over that. And when you actually look at the code, when I look at the code and read it, man, it doesn't look similar to me. It doesn't look like 96% similarity. It, it looks totally different. But what they're saying is there are sections of code that switch on similar uh, you know, genes and, and, so, and so forth. Uh, but again, to me, uh, you know, if we use the example of Porsche and VW cars, you know, they have the same designer, they're mm. quite different, uh, but they have a lot of common, you know, common properties, you know, horizontally opposed engines and rear engines and, and so forth, because they have the same designers, father mm. and son team. So what you're saying is similarities in terms of anatomy um, and genetics or the genome um, could also be explained by the common designer rather than just a common ancestor. That's, that's the, the oh, line yes, of your reasoning. Yes. And look, one of the fascinating things is that Darwin's tree and the original um, evolutionary trees that were proposed after Darwin, you know, based on the fossil records uh, and the, the geologic column and the, the shape of animals, their anatomy and physiology, which we call the, you know, homologous series of sort, that's based on their anatomy and physiology. When we started analysing the DNA, when we got that capability, we found, whoa, hang on, it's a totally different picture. And so when we do the, what we call phylogenic trees now, based on the similarities in DNA, they go really wild. Like I think the ones for humans, we related to dogs and fungi Bananas. and E. coli. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's just, it goes really weird. And I think one of the things that people don't realise is that the same piece of code 
in a different environment will produce different outcomes. Mm. And this is one of the fascinating things. So you can have a code that might produce an eye in one organism and in another organism, it doesn't produce an eye. Mm. This is one of the fascinating things. Yes, yeah. and one of the diagrams that you probably would have seen in your science textbooks um, would have been this series of embryos. So not only the similarities between chimpanzees and, and apes and, and um, human beings, but also embryos following the development and, and you start to see, hang on, it, it looks like evolution, you can watch evolution in action. So I just wanted to know, did you have any sort of thoughts or comments or questions on, on that aspect of, of evolution? Mm. Yeah, look, well, jumping in on that one, I mean, you know, Heckel's drawing that we see was, was done quite a while ago. Um, you know, it's still been in textbooks, you know, right into the 2000s. Um, what is the evidence to support that? And have there been further photographic studies done to document that? Yes, yes, certainly. So yes, Heckel, the uh, German embryologist, uh, proposed that, that the embryos went through stages that represented the evolutionary ancestor of the species. Um, and this has certainly been in textbooks, um, you know, up until fairly recently, as you say, in the, in the mid 2000s, I remember seeing that purported in, or written up in a textbook at a university, in a university library, which I thought was really wrong because back in uh, the mid 1990s, a Dr. Richardson with a team of colleagues did a major study photographing embryos from a number of different creatures, hmm. putting them together. And that was published in Science in 1998. It was published in the Journal of Embryology, I think, earlier, but uh, it got into science. Now, Science, the journal Science is one of the top yeah. science journals in the world with Nature, so you get published in that journal, you get a lot of brownie points. <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, so that has definitely been shown to be incorrect now. He showed that that does not occur. No human uh, fetuses have gills at any stage. None of these uh, scenarios claimed by Heckel uh, actually occur. And really, it's morally wrong that those uh, textbooks that should really be up to date are publishing that now because that was a major study to investigate that. There were multiple authors. It was published in major science journals in 1997-1998. And Dr Ashton, it sounds like such an emotive story and it's so convincing on the surface, but um, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, am I correct in understanding that um, if our DNA is fully human right from conception, that um, it wouldn't be scientific anyway for us to like to reflect all the different evolutionary stages of the past. Is that correct? Yeah, spot on. Mm. And um, that, and that's a very interesting characteristic. But what makes our DNA fully human is the is the big picture of the DNA. And I guess what upsets me is that today, authors are producing books for young children. Uh, I saw one titled recently. I think Grandmother Fish something like that. And it's, it's teaching young children that they evolve from, from fish. And I think this is just so morally wrong. We don't know, have any mechanism for that. We don't have any uh, geological, paleontological evidence for that. And yet this is being put into young minds. And I, that really upsets me. You know, we really appreciate um, you just being able to journey with us through Darwin's theory to, to have a better understanding, to understand some of the sociological but also the scientific aspects as well. And you know, you might have been thinking you wished you were here with us 
to have this discussion together. Well, the good news is this, you can actually join us. Um, just go to any online bookstore right around the world and get Dr. John Ashton's book, Evolution Impossible. You can go chapter by chapter. You can be one step ahead of us. Wouldn't that be great? But you know, it's been really good to gain a very clear understanding of what Darwin's theory of evolution actually was. Now that we have a much better grasp of his theory, we can start asking the question, is evolution impossible? Or is it possible? Next time, we'll be diving into the smallest living thing, the living cell. Join us on this exciting journey of scientific discovery. joining us on Evolution Impossible, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au or call us within Australia on 024973 3456. We'd love to hear from you.